Our sermon today we brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Persistent Widow. Well, good afternoon. It's good to see everyone here. We got new lighting up here on the pulpit, so I'm just kind of checking it out for the first time here. So, good job there. So, as was mentioned, uh, this message today is called The Persistent Widow. And we're going to be looking at another parable. (laughs) Uh, Today's a day of parables. Uh, But I'm going to get into Luke, the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 8 today. And it's a parable about a widow who was persistent. But I was a little scatterbrained as I was preparing the introduction for this message because there's a lot we can get out of this parable. Uh, You know, we're set here on earth. We're born, God's our creator, we're here to walk with God, and this walk brings about many different ups and downs, right? You know, we go through things in life, through our development years, uh, as a teenager, as children, then a teenager, then maybe marriage, then maybe we have our own children. We suffer tragedy. And all of that changes us, right? It sometimes, you know, we, we, it, 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 we can sometimes look back on our life, and I've only lived for 36 years, a little bit more than 36 years now, but our perceptions change on things sometimes. I was reminded a few weeks ago, kind of of this change, when Mr. Matthew Steele gave a sermon on Jesus' return. That message really resonated with me because I know it was, as Matthew said, inspired in part at least by a song by Andrew Peterson called Come Back Soon. And that song talks a lot about this yearning we have inside ourselves for Christ to return, to be born. There is this weird dichotomy in our life, right? Because we, from birth, I, I, I argue and I think the scriptures back this up, that we have this strong desire for eternity. It's in us. I believe, personally, could be wrong, that that is the breath of God that exists within us. The breath of God, which is life, and wants life, and wants to know what's on the other side, even though we don't know completely what that other side looks like, or how it's going to happen. We've been given promises. And so, while I was thinking about Matthew's message, I was thinking about my perspective on the return of Christ, and on the kingdom of God, and how you change a little bit through your life, right? You know, maybe when you're a little younger, you're like, I want Christ to return, but not too soon. i got some things I want to do. And then things happen, and you experience life. Maybe you experience tragedy, maybe you experience heartache or you just see the suffering and you realize that it it, it kind of ignites that innate nature within us to want that return to come. For that veil to be finally torn completely and us to see the spiritual side of and spiritual significance and meaning of everything as spirit beings. Not just as humans where we're trying to grasp 
And we're trying to understand. And we can a little bit. We have the scriptures, but we're still humans. So it's almost like a, a language, to so, so to speak, that we just quite can't understand. But we, we have this innate desire in us. And so why that's a dichotomy, in my opinion, is because although that nature is in us, and it's good, and it's a nature that's bent on wanting life, the model seems to be in the Scriptures that we need to be here and live this life. And there's purpose to it. And there's continuity between what we do here and what happens next. It's not that we're here, we're human beings, and then we die, and then there's the kingdom of God. We're spirit beings, and that old has passed away, and here's the new. And we know the scriptures talk about that. The old passes away, and God brings the new. But even so, there's continuity. There's significance that continues on into that next venture that God's bringing us to. That's why this life's important. And that's why I picked this parable today and one of the things that it taught me. The parable of what is known as the persistent widow. Despite all of those things that happen in our life, despite the, the ups and downs and the evolving of our perceptions and the experiences that change us, there's one thing that we are to remain in. And that is our persistence. Our persistence in reaching and seeking God. The definition of persistence is a firm or obstinate continuance and a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Persistence is not easy. Continuing to do something is not easy. Because there's times it gets difficult. There's times you don't want to do it. There's times you believe that there's nothing that's coming of it. That it's not helping you in any way. But I think that the scriptures tell us that there's something about persistence. That there's growth to be had in our pursuing and seeking God. Growth in our walk with God and thus our knowledge of God and knowing God. So let's go to Luke the 18th chapter verses 1 through 8. And let's look at this. Let's look at this real quick. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read the, the, the parable. And what I'd like to do is kind of go through some of the background of what's happening and, 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 and things like that. And at the end, I want us to maybe consider two points. There's many more points that we could probably consider, but that's the format of this message. In Luke, the 18th chapter, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. It's kind of the specific purpose of this parable. There's more to it, but he just right at the very beginning tells us what the purpose is. The parable is that men should always pray and not lose heart. Verse 2, saying, there was a certain city, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. 
Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on earth? So we have to ask the question, which is real simple, what is this parable about? Well, it's obviously about prayer and faith. It's about being steadfast in our prayer, being persistent in our prayer and in our faith in God. But it almost seems, because we look at Luke and we look at what's around, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about the, the end of days, the coming of the Son of Man, and even in verse 6, or verse 8 rather, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? He's almost putting this in the context of those who are close or waiting on the Son of Man to return. He almost understands, and we know Jesus understands all things, the Son of God, divine in and of himself, he understands that things will get more and more difficult. But that doesn't mean that this only applies to people in the end of days. There have been thousands, millions, billions of people that have lived and died since this has been written. Because we all have an end of days, even if it's not the end of Jesus' return. And we know that because at any time our last breath could be taken. We never know when it is. So we have this story, the judge and the widow. And the story is about a widow. She needed justice. And had no other choice but to beckon a worldly judge. She's a widow. And we're going to get into maybe some of her background and why this judge would have been someone she might have chose. In the story, the judge seemed to be someone who was somewhat of annoyed at this woman. He's not really interested in her. He doesn't want to you know, heed her requests. But eventually, because of her persistence, he relented and avenged her adversary and gave her justice. And so let's learn a little bit about these two individuals. The first, the, the, the judge, this judge was described in verse 6 as being unjust. In fact, when we first are introduced to this person, the judge is said to be someone who neither feared God or regarded man. So obviously, you could say that this description, this judge was not someone who took or lived by the great commandments, right? Loving God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and loving thy neighbor. So, even though that was the case, his job was to be an arbiter of justice, even if he didn't do it properly. Now, we know that judges are very important in the Bible. In fact, if we were to read 2 Chronicles, the 19th chapter, verses 6 and 7, we see how important of a role they played in the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be God's representatives for those who needed them the most, especially those who were considered the most vulnerable. King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles, the 19th chapter, tells this to whenever he's appointing judges in Judah. He says, take heed, verse 6, to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you and take care and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. And we've read the scriptures. We've seen the history of Israel time and time again. This is often the cry of the prophets. Unjust judges. People who do take bribes that aren't rightly seeking justice. 
According to Edersheim, a historical source, so to speak, that has written several books, Alfred Edersheim is his name. He's written a lot about the times of Jesus and the history and the cultural things. According to him, judges in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus' day were so corrupt they were referred to as robber judges as opposed to, it's kind of a, a joke that we might not quite get because their actual title were judges of prohibitions. These basic judges that were here and set here without, within the context of places like Jerusalem and things like that. Now in the context, it seems that this judge was probably a Gentile who was charged with overseeing civil issues that were financial in nature. Now we can't be completely sure 100% what the matter was, but it is possible that as a local secular administrative officer, he would often be approached by people of lower status, people such as a widow, who maybe didn't have someone to represent them, to be able to have the rights to go to someone more prestigious, or maybe an elite judge, or someone who is of the high religious courts. And so this is some of the background of this judge. What we know is that he's not righteous. He doesn't regard God nor man. Now the widow, widows in the scripture, this is important because even today we understand how important widows are. We understand that, uh, uh, you know, there's a reverence that you need to have for widows and even widowers. But widows in scripture are viewed as some of the most vulnerable members of society outside of children. And there were many reasons for this. In fact, what you would see oftentimes, a husband would die from a woman, and what would a man do? He would take her in as his wife as a way of taking care of her because they were very vulnerable. Oftentimes, most societies in our history were patriarchal, meaning women did not have the same rights as they usually do in like Western countries today. They often didn't have the same rights in terms of employment, property, or other areas, and they could be taken advantage of easily by people who were not just, who were not you know, bent on seeking righteous judgment. In fact, we see that God recognizes this throughout the scriptures because there are so many passages in the law and throughout the prophets that talk about and warning people about withholding justice from the widow and the fatherless. They were a significantly vulnerable part of the population. So the woman's request was simple. And again, we don't quite know exactly what it was that she was wanting justice for. We know that she just wanted justice from her adversary. So it could have been financial in nature. It could have been a creditor trying to take her land or property. We just can't be for sure because we don't under, it doesn't tell us. And it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that she's seeking justice from a Gentile civil authority. And one thing it does seem, though, it does seem that whatever she's seeking is genuine. It's true. She's not asking for a favor. Hey, give me an advantage over these people. He's not, she's not asking the judge to be corrupt and, and to favor her in some way and, and give her you know, unjust justice, so to speak. But whatever the widow was asking her seems to be something that was right, that she was just simply wanting fairness, that something wrong had been done to her and it, she wanted it to be made right. And so the judge's final response, after the woman's persistence, she keeps asking, keeps knowing this individual. He finally relents and gives her justice. Now, he doesn't do this because he finally said, you know what, I need to do this because there's a God in heaven. 
and he's going to judge me if I don't do this. He's probably not reading what Jehoshaphat said in 2 Chronicles. He's not regarding God. He's not doing it because he starts regarding God or because he really is wanting justice or because he cares about this woman. But because it relieves him of the discomfort that this woman is presenting in his life. He's relieved. You see, he is relieved because this woman essentially is annoying him. Now, there's, a, there's some different interpretations of what it makes, what makes this judge relent and give this woman justice. In fact, if we read the Greek, it literally means, that is, that she wears me out. That it literally means that, that when you read the translations in English, rather, we read, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me, or lest she wear me out. Now, that's what it reads in the English. That's the translation. The Greek actually is interesting because the Greek phrase is actually, the phrase wear me out is actually to strike under the eye or to give a black eye. It's kind of interesting. And there's some possible explanations or interpretations. I think both work. The first one is, it's boxing language. It's more language that's kind of natural to the English and the way we interpret it in English. You know, like a boxer continually jabbing in a person's eye, eventually, if someone keeps hitting you in the eye, even if it's a, not a knockout punch, they're going to wear you down. They're going to wear you down. And you're going to have a black eye because they continually punch. And so, in essence, her plea is annoying her and granting her requests would relieve him of this nuisance that she is causing him. Now, all of us that have children probably can relate to this. I mean, there's no creature on earth that's better at this technique than children. We've all been there, right? They come to you, they want something, you say no. They keep asking, you say no. And they get smart about it. They almost become like little statisticians, you know, kind of figuring out the probability of which parent's going to maybe cave. They become very good at this. And all of us probably have succumbed to this at one point or another. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a typical, normal, natural thing in human beings and being a parent. The other idea or interpretation, which I think you can look at both of them, they both work, is the cultural idea. That this judge is actually not worried about the woman, not worried about God, not worried about justice, but he does it because it could possibly hurt his reputation. In fact, having one's face blackened could be a sign of shame in Eastern cultures during this time. And still, to this day, it can be a sign of shame. Even in our own Western culture or American culture, the idea, the metaphorical usage of talking about having a black eye can sometimes be one of shame, one of, you know, maybe damage to one's reputation because of an act that they did. So maybe this, this judge is worried that, man, people are going to continually see that I'm ignoring her and my reputation will suffer. It's not out of the goodness of his heart. It's not because he's seeking justice or regards this woman. In verse 6, I want to read that again because we're going to get into Jesus' explanation. So we just read kind of what happened. This woman comes to him. He doesn't want to give her justice. She persists and finally wears him down to where she, he obliges. But verse 6, after that, Jesus says this. Jesus' response is, then the Lord said, 
Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? It's interesting how Jesus responds. He wants the readers, he wants his hearers to look at what the man said. To what the judge said. It's interesting. Hear what the unjust judge says there in verse 6. Meaning that there's something that in this parable that we can learn from the judge's own words. Now we just saw that he obliged with the widow's request. Either to stop being annoyed by her, as the same language seems to indicate, or in order to protect his reputation as not being shrewd to a helpless widow. But we know he didn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. And so Jesus is saying, look at this man that's not even bent on justice, doesn't regard God, doesn't regard the woman, doesn't regard justice. If he can be moved to act by persistence, how much more is your heavenly Father, who is complete righteousness, where we get the very word justice as rooted in God's very character, how much more would he, to his children whom he loves and has compassion for, would he be moved? By persistence. Jesus asked this question though in the next verse. To drive home this point. And shall God not avenge his own elect. Who cry out day and night to him. Though he bears long with them. Jesus, Jesus uses that word elect. He's talking to his disciples. And we know that the church. Becomes a part of this elect. It starts out with twelve. Goes down to 11 and then they replace Judas, of course. And then the church begins. God's elect. Those individuals living on earth and continuing to be con being converted. This language of the elect is used all throughout the Gospels and even in Revelation. Talking about those who are on Christ's side at the end. Who are vindicated by his return. So Jesus concludes by confirming both God's rescue and bringing about righteous justice as well as with a question. He says that God will avenge them, that is the elect, but then he asks, he asks this question at the very end. He doesn't just leave it, that, yeah, God's going to do this, of course. But he almost asks, but will God, will me, will I, will the Son of Man find faith on earth when I return? When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will you really be persistent? Will you really be continuing in that persistence? Let's just think about in the Old Testament, how many righteous people of God had to wait on God to work out justice and vindicate them. And sometimes it probably seemed slow and that it took a long time. And you know, that's one of the, sometimes the consequences of being able to read the story in full, right? You read the story, you read about God walking with someone, or someone walking with God, you read about God giving them promises, and then a few chapters later, God gives them the promise. Not always, there's still some promises of people who have died and haven't received them, but you see the story in full. Even though between God giving the promise and the three or four chapters over, might have been many years that have went by. 
We can think about Moses. I mean, that's a story, right? Moses, that God was going to deliver the children of Israel. That he heard this message. It wasn't just automatic. In fact, even though it wasn't automatic and the plagues didn't just come all at once and it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to send you to Egypt and tomorrow I'm delivering them. No, there was a process of time. And even whenever they left Egypt, it was another process of time through the wilderness. Samuel, David, Daniel. There's just a few examples and many other prophets who proclaim God's justice coming even though they had to wait years for it to happen. When you read the Psalm of David, the Psalms of David, not just the Psalm, but the Psalms, plural, and you read oftentimes he's in the midst of some sort of trial. He's in the midst of some sort of struggle and pleading with God. And he patiently persists. Like Psalm the 25th chapter, verses 2 and 3. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let, not, let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those, who, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And even though it did not happen immediately, we see persistence in their steadfast faith and in them reaching out and pleading with God. Persistence. Continuing. Even when we are having to persist and we're pleading with God to do something and it's not happening, there's growth to be had. There's a struggle. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's kind of like Jacob when he wrestled with God. He, you know, he strove with God. It was a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a physical story. You read it in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God, but there's a spiritual implication. There's a, there's a struggle that happens between him with God. And it wasn't God. Obviously, God wasn't his adversary. But it was like a spiritual thing that was happening in his life that continued to happen. Strove with God. He, can we strive with God continually and persistently? So there's two points from this story I want us to bring out and I want us to think about today. The first one is real simple. We need to be persistent with God. This struggle in life and our persistence has a power to produce something within us. It creates a continual searching of God, something that I believe that He wants. He wants us to persist. He wants us to seek Him. It also creates in us a heart for Him, and it forces us to walk with Him. And in doing so, He is moved. He is moved by our persistence. Not because He wants us just to beg, but because He's our Creator. He understands the growth that happens as we persist with Him, as we continue with Him. And just giving everything to us all at once. And that's why this life means something. Otherwise, why not just when you accept Christ, why aren't you just sent up to, the, to heaven? There's a meaning to this life. There is a purpose. There's a growth. There's a growth. I think that there's one particular story that came out at me when I was reading this. 
I mean, we can think of many examples. Genesis 18 chapters, where we're going to go, and it's Abraham's request to spare Sodom, which is a great example of being persistent with God. And we, just to give you the background, Abraham has these three men while he's by the terebinth trees, as it says. He's, these three men approach him, appear to him, and one of them appears to be God, and the other two are some sort of angelic agents of God. Now, you learn this as you read the story. And beginning in verse 16, God reveals his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, at hearing about God's plan, has this persistent plea with God. In verse 16, then the men... Talking about the three men. Then the men arose. It's strange. It's, I don't want to use the word strange. That's maybe not the appropriate way. It's, you have to read it. It goes in and out of calling these three men. But it's very clear that one of them is God. And when you read the story. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the, the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Wow. Talking to God of the universe, Abraham. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed, now I am but dust and ashes and have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there are 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak, but once more, suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And unfortunately for the story, we know that God gets to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he doesn't find ten righteous men, ten righteous people. 
the city is destroyed, but Lot's family is spared. And of course, his wife, we understand, looks back. And, and, and that's another story in and of itself, but she's destroyed along with, turned into a pillar of salt. But this story, some points to it, there are several we can take from this. And I think it greatly relates to the parable of the persistent widow. First of all, Abraham was persistent in his plead with God. I mean, all the way down to 10 individuals. Started at 50. In fact, he wasn't just going to destroy the city, right? He said, well, hey, if there's 50 people there, I mean, you're the righteous judge of all the earth. I mean, don't you think it would be right for the righteous God of all the universe to destroy, you know, whether there's thousands of wicked people there. I mean, to spare 50 would be righteous, would be justice, right? And God obliged. And he continued to persist. And he continued to persist. The second point of the story is that Abraham approached God in humility. Though I am but dust and ashes. Though I am but dust and ashes. Humility. With respect. Third, the third point that I kind of looked at as I was looking at this. Abraham's requests were centered on righteousness. They weren't requests that would benefit him. They weren't like requests that were somehow he was getting, he had some incentive. Rather, he didn't want to see righteous people perish. He didn't want to see righteous people perish. What he was asking was just. I believe, personally, that God wanted Abraham to persist in these requests. I think that God wants that. Because that right there is a demonstration of true faith in a personal God. A God that you can talk to. A God that you can lean into and ask and talk with and plead with. And in the process of time, that God, our God, shows us a little bit more of who He is day in, day out. As we walk with Him, he desires for us to contend with Him. Not in the negative sense, to strive with Him, to walk with Him, to persist with Him. My second point within this is that God wants us, well, it's not my second main point, my second sub-point of the first main point, that is, persist with God. God wants us to seek, knock, and then seek and knock again which is completely in line with the persistence of God. In Luke, the 10th chapter, there's a similar story of the persistent window, widow that is often called the friend at midnight. In Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 5 through 13. You see, there's this story. It's, Luke has a lot of similarities, but there's this other parable about this friend at midnight who comes to a friend and asks for bread at midnight. And the friend's probably annoyed. Midnight, man, what are you doing? Asking for bread? But Jesus says this in, nine, in verse 9 and 10 of Luke, the 10th chapter. It has a similar point to the parable that we just looked over today. And that is, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, there's no timeline here. There's no timeline. We, we are 
told that when God's justice comes, it comes swiftly. It comes quickly. But it doesn't mean that the time that you ask and request to the time that it happens is quick. I'm sure it's quick to God. I'm sure it'll be quick to us essentially someday when we understand what existence is like outside of space-time and matter and all that, right? But right now, it can seem like God's long-suffering, like God is delaying His presentment of justice. My second main point is that vindication will come even though there is this intermediary period. There's this period between the things that we have to go through in this life and the things that we will continue to go through until our race is over. You know, the finish line's important. But what happens in that finish line? You know, you go to funerals, right, and people talk about the dash. I think it was David Antion, when his wife died this past, past year, he talked about, you know, you see a grave, right? And you see the, the year of their birth, and of course the date in which they die. And in between is the dash. That dash matters. That there's growth to be had in that dash. And there's continuity in that dash beyond that second date. There's continuity in that dash and beyond that second date. And that second date being beyond whatever the date was that that person passed from this life and is, this life and is now sleeping in Christ. We do not know where we are in terms of Christ's return and the kingdom being set up on earth. There's been many people that have thought, this is our time. This is our time. It's going to happen. Even in our own tradition, people thought that for many years. It could be. could be in our lifetime. We don't know. But what, what will be in our lifetime, unless Christ does return before our body fills us, for whatever reason, our mortal bodies fill us, it, we're all going to end physically. Our end of days is coming to all of us. And we never know when it is. And so that's why this matters for all people of all times. We do not know when that event will be. We do not know Christ's return. In fact, what we do know is, is that even the scriptures themselves, like Hebrews the 11th chapter, verse 39, tells us that many died in Christ not receiving the promises. Not receiving the promises. And all these, after it goes through the hall of faith, or the faith chapter of the New Testament, all of these, and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Still yet, even though this is the case, even though, and whatever it may be, whatever comes upon us in life, and maybe it's not even that you want to be relieved from adversaries. Maybe the adversaries are physical people that are doing stuff to you that's not right. Or it could be the adversary of your own self. The struggle that you have, your emotions, things that you deal with in life. It could be any of those things. Yet we are to remain persistent in our plea with God. He's not ignoring us. He hears our pleas. And you know what? Even in our death, He hears our pleas. 
Because we read in Revelation, the sixth chapter, even the righteous dead, the echoes, not saying they're alive and conscious, the echoes of their pleas ring in God's ears. Revelation, the sixth chapter, verse nine says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? I believe that even when we're gone, that the echoes of his righteous dead echo for him to hear. I'm not saying that literally, but I'm saying that he doesn't forget us, even in our death. He knows who we are. He knows what our pleads were. He knows what our requests were, what our longings were. And he hears those. Those righteous longings, that is. Those just longings. Those longings of Christ's return, I believe, echo in God's ear, even among those who have died. So as I conclude this sermon today, I want us to remember to persist in our walk with God. Persist in our prayer. Persist in our striving with Him and, and, and looking to Him and understanding that it's a journey and it's a race and that dash matters, that these things that we go through matter. These con the continual pleadings matter. Therefore, if we do this, I think we can answer Jesus' question with a confirmation, yes, when he asks, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth?